Glad that you have joined us this morning as we kick off a brand new series. And before we dive in this morning, will you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, thank you so much that you are our risen Savior, God. Thank you for what we celebrated last week, that you defeated death. What we just sang about, God, that you are alive and you're sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you did on the cross, all the sacrifices you made. God, and today as we turn our attention towards the life of one of the greatest leaders of all times, God, I pray that you would help us as we walk through this series over these next few weeks to glean everything that we can from the life of this one who led so many people to freedom. And God, I pray that you would pierce our hearts. God, I pray as we approach this series that you would just allow each one of us who are here to make this incredibly personal. God, I pray that you would just guide us into the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, give us knowledge, and give us understanding. But most of all, God, I pray that you would help us to be changed people as a result of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we start off a series called Highly Unlikely. This is the story of God using Moses despite really everything. And I love the story of Moses. I love the character. I love the man, who he was, and what God did in his life. And I, my prayer is and my hope is, is that over the course of these next four weeks that you'll be able to glean something from his life that you can apply to yours in the way that God may be dealing with you and the way that you're dealing with God. I, um, I find it very interesting. I find it kind of comical that every year right around Easter, the, uh, the TV networks uh, try to find a, a religious movie to, to play on TV. And so, you know, they, they search far and wide, don't they, to find a, a movie to show on the network TVs and, and a network TV. And so they, they search far, far and wide and they, they come up with um, the great Christian epic called the Ten Commandments, right? And uh, so that's what they can find. That's the closest thing that they can find to what they think relates to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so their claim is, is that they play the Ten Commandments every year because it's the week of Passover and uh, because it's the week of Easter. And so, um, you know, we can kind of understand that. And uh, sure enough, last Saturday, uh, our family was here all day. We were setting up for our big tent service our covered environment service, anyway, outside. And so we got home, and sure enough, we put the TV on, and there it was, the Ten Commandments. And, and I'm a bit of a nerd, so I wanted to do some research about this. So I wanted to find out, like, why, you know, what's the story behind this? Why do they play this movie that was made so many years ago, 1956, by the way? Why do they do this? They started in 1973. That's the year that I was born. They started airing this, uh, ABC did, uh, every Easter, the Saturday before Easter, and it has played every year on network television since 1973, which is just incredible. Millions of people get their understanding of who Moses was, and some people get their understanding of what Christianity is all about, maybe even Judaism, from a network TV show, from a, a movie that's like, you know, five hours long uh, called The Ten Commandments. And because of that, we have an interesting picture of Moses, don't we? Charlton Heston, right? Our picture of Moses is this strong male model, tan, dark, with a big white beard, perfectly 
able to communicate anything to people in a very strong way, easily falls into the leadership role that God had for him, right? That's the picture that we have of Moses. And as I watched a couple weeks ago, or uh, last week, I watched the Ten Commandments, I was actually uh, pleasantly surprised and reminded um, that the version that we watch on TV really is, is pretty close to what Scripture says it was like. And they did a pretty good job. They took a couple liberties, and uh, they, they probably uh, uh, magnified a few things, embellished a few things. Uh, there were maybe just a few inaccuracies. But in terms of Moses, the man... We have an interesting picture and one that really popular culture has given us for 50 plus years now. Isn't that incredible? And so that's where we get this picture of who Moses is. And there are some things that are accurate about that and there are other things that are not so accurate about it. Moses, this man who led the nation of Israel through one of its darkest days, is portrayed on TV as this model of a person and he was in some respects but he certainly wasn't in some other respects it was a dark time for Israel it's interesting over these past few years these past five years as we in America have gone through what they're now calling the great recession we've all felt the pinch of that I've heard a lot of people describe it as a very dark time in America and you hear people describe World War II and World War I as a dark time in America and you hear people describe the Great Depression as a dark time, the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s, as a dark time in America. But I promise you this, the darkest dark time in America, whenever that period of time is in America, pales in comparison to what the nation of Israel was going through as the book of Genesis closes and the book of Exodus opens up. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus 1. Over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to be in the first part of Exodus. We're going to be taking a look at this man's life, this man named Moses. And so today we're going to be in chapters 1 and 2 in various places in Exodus 1 and 2. The verses that I want to emphasize will be on the screens this morning, but you can follow along because we're going to be going pretty much straight through those two chapters. Now, how dark was it for the nation of Israel during this time? How just incredibly awful was the picture. Well, let me bring you up to speed. If you were here back in February, we walked through a message series called Faithful. And in that message series, we talked about a man by the name of Joseph. And we talked about how the fact that his father was Jacob. And if you were here, you remember that Joseph was sold by his brothers, those people who were supposed to love him the most, that he was sold into slavery. He was sold into Egyptian slavery. But it's interesting, as the story goes, and as the Bible tells us, he reconciles with his brothers. And if you remember this from our series in February, he reconciles with his brothers, and he so changes the kind of the tenor of that relationship, the, the meaning of that relationship that was uh, built on deceit and deception and, and that sort of thing. He completely changes that so much, and he forgives them to the extent, and he has risen, Joseph has, to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, that he goes on behalf of his family to Pharaoh, and he says, I want my family to move into Goshen, one of the greatest parts of all of Egypt. I want my family to be in this area of Egypt that has incredible resources. 
And the Pharaoh of that time and of that day grants with great excitement Joseph's request because he loved Joseph so much. And he said, absolutely, you and your brothers and your family, they can absolutely move in. They can have the best of the best of the best of everything that Egypt has to offer. And so Joseph went and he got his brothers, he gathered his brothers together, he gathered Jacob. The whole family at this point in time, biblical scholars tell us that there were roughly 70 to 75 people in this family that moved from their homeland of Israel into Egypt. And they settled there in Egypt with about 70 people. Well, it became a darker and darker and darker time for the nation of Israel as time went on. And as the one Pharaoh that was so absolutely excited about these people moving in, and he was excited about being able to meet Joseph's request and meet his needs and take care of this man's family that he loved, as he passed away and as other Pharaohs came on the scene, the relationship between the Egyptian leaders and the nation of Israel got worse and worse and worse. And here's why. In 400 years, 75 people turned into, wait for it, two and a half million people. Isn't that incredible? I mean, they must not have had anything to do in Egypt. And it turned into two and a half million people. There were two and a half million Jewish people living in Egypt. And the Pharaoh of that day and age became incredibly insecure about this. He was so concerned, the Bible says that he was so concerned that these people would turn on him and that, that they would join with Egypt's enemies and that during a wartime they would join in and attack Egypt. So much so that they put the nation of Israel to work. And I don't mean just regular work. This was hard work, slave labor type work. And so the Pharaoh of this day and age turned the Jewish people, not from just a people, but they turned them into slaves. And if you remember the Ten Commandments, the movie, it portrays that so well. They literally would whip them and beat them and push them to the brink of death. And in some cases, they would actually kill them. And so during those 400 years, it appears that the promise that God made to Abraham nearly 500 years earlier, that that promise that he made to Abraham that he would make him a great nation that once looked so secure with two and a half million people, it looked as if this thing was spiraling out of control. And during these 400 years, God promised to provide a leader who would lead that nation, that would lead that people, his chosen people, Israel, out of captivity but as time goes on, no one emerges. Not one person emerges as a potential leader to be the redeemer, to be the savior of this group of people called the Hebrew people. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, as old Paul Harvey used to say, I'm going to give you the rest of the story. Because I think it's important to understand what Moses did, what God did through Moses in the end. And I'll remind you each of these four weeks of what God accomplished through Moses. Because the point of this series is not what he accomplished, although that's incredibly important. The point of this whole series is what God did through Moses despite his whole life. The important part of this series is to understand what God did despite Moses' shortcomings, despite his weaknesses, despite his upbringing. Here's what God did 
through the life of this leader who is really unparalleled by anyone in history ever again. He led his people out of slavery. I mentioned two and a half million. It might have been more. Some scholars think it was many, as many as three million people. He led them across the Red Sea. You remember God split the Red Sea and the nation of Israel walked on dry land. And as that last person walked across the Red Sea, the seas collapsed upon the Egyptian army and the people were set free. But he led these people for 40 years, nearly 40 years, through the desert, wandering, wondering where God was going to take them at that point. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. This was the man that God gave his rules for living, rules for living that we still have today, thousands and thousands of years later, that we still abide by, that we still respect. God gave this man, Moses, the Ten Commandments. He organized this group of people, this two and a half million people, into a nation. In fact, the group of people called the Jews, the Hebrew group of people, were never referred to as a nation until they started wandering in Sinai and in the desert. And Moses and his leaders began to organize them, and they began to put a, a plan together that God gave Moses to turn this group of people into a nation. God established a new covenant with the nation of Israel with his chosen people through Moses. Moses became God's representative to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel. He moved two and a half million people through a desert over the course of nearly 40 years. It's incredible. Cynthia and I, back in 2003, we took a, a group of people to um, uh, Morocco. And we did some ministry with our church in Atlanta uh, there in Morocco. And it was in a Spanish province called Malia. And on like one of the last days of our missions trip there in Malia that was a Spanish province, lots of freedom, lots of ability to spread the word of God, to, to hand out Bibles and that sort of thing. Well, on the last day, we took a trip into Nador, Morocco. Now, once you cross the border from the Spanish province into Morocco, it's a whole different world. It's a Muslim country. And they claim that they love Americans, but you certainly didn't get that sense as you crossed across the border. The border came bottlenecked down to this one little gate where there were probably, I don't know, maybe five or 6,000 people waiting in line to cross back and forth. The Spanish people would cross into Morocco and they would bring back just buckets and buckets of stuff from Morocco. And there'd be people on the Spanish side who were Moroccan and they would cross back through and, and they'd bring buckets and buckets of stuff into Morocco. It was a chaotic, chaotic environment. And we were going to Nador, which is a, a large city um, kind of near Malia. It's uh, maybe a half an hour drive. And we got into a cab and we drove into Nador. And we had one rule that day, and it was this. Everybody had to be in a single file line because this was not Spain anymore. This was Morocco. And it was a very crowded area. And we were going there to visit the market, which is where most people went to visit. And we, would, we visited the market there. And we had 12 people in our group. And I was responsible for their safety. 12 people for a day. And we had a leader who knew the city of Nador very well. And she was in front. And I was in back. And every time we turned a corner in that crowded sook, in that crowded market, I would count heads. One, two, three. For I'd count them as they would turn. Every turn we took, I counted these heads. We got done with the day, and I was completely exhausted. I had 12 people for a day, and it was almost a disaster. Moses had two and a half million 
for most of his life, wandering through the desert. Can you imagine the pressure that was on this man? Can you imagine what God was asking of him, what he had to do? There was so much that God had planned for Moses. God did so much through this man. He did so much. He saved a whole race of people. But you know, from a human standpoint, he wasn't supposed to. From a human standpoint, if you look at his life, if you look at the course of his life, he wasn't the man for the job. He certainly didn't have the upbringing to do it. He certainly didn't make wise choices. He certainly didn't have the talents or the the abilities to. But God, I want you to catch this, God in Moses' life was greater than all of the shortcomings that he had. He was greater than every part of Moses' life. And God used a man who was willing to be used by God. Take a look at your notes this morning. I want you to see the key point. God is fully aware of all the circumstances surrounding our birth into the world, the way that we were raised as children, and all the mistakes that we've made along the way. We can believe that he will use the circumstances of our past to accomplish his plan and purpose for our lives. It's your first point this morning. It's the key point. God is fully aware. I want you to capture this. Let this sink in to your mind and to your heart. He is fully aware of all the circumstances surrounding our birth into this world, the way that we were raised as children, and all the mistakes that we've made along the way. We can believe that he will use the circumstances of our past to accomplish his plan and purpose for our lives. But here's the question for you this morning. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God can use your past to accomplish his purpose for your life? Do you really believe that God can use your past as bad as it may be, as sorry as it may seem, do you really believe that he can use that for his glory, for kingdom work? Do you really believe that? Let's take a look at our notes this morning. He used Moses despite everything. First, God used Moses despite the circumstances surrounding his birth. God used Moses despite the circumstances surrounding his birth. I want you to take a look at Exodus 1. We're going to be in verses 8 through 16 here for our first point this morning. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph, I just told you that story, came to power in Egypt. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Let me interpret shrewdly. We want to kill them, okay? We want to deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them, what? Ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. This was a dark age for the nation of Israel. 
They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their hard labor, the Egyptians used them. Once again, we see that word ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to to the Hebrew midwives, whose names I won't pronounce, verse 16, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every boy that is born you you must throw in the Nile, but let every girl live. The Bible goes on to tell us that these two midwives who were evidently in charge of the labor and delivery department for the Hebrew nation there in Egypt, they respected God more than Pharaoh. That's essentially what the Bible says. They respected God more than Pharaoh, and they knew that this command could not have come from God, that this was something that man made up out of insecurity and out of fear, and they didn't do it. They completely disobeyed the Pharaoh, and they got in so much trouble. The Bible describes how it, it was supposed to be that every single boy was to be killed. And during that day and age, these two women, these two midwives, saved, helped save the nation of Israel. Now think about this. The man who would lead two and a half million people was born during this period of time. He shouldn't have even been born. Moses should not have been born. Charlton Heston would not have made a movie if Moses had not been born, right? Moses should not have even been born. And some of you, if you think about your lives, you might think, you know what? I probably shouldn't have been born either. I remember my best, one of my best friends in high school at 16 came to me kind of distraught as he began thinking about the story of his life and realized that his mom and dad had a choice to make. His mom and dad grew up in a Christian home. They weren't married, and they got pregnant with him. And they had a choice to make. And he became very distraught when he found out that they made the right choice, but he didn't know about this. And the story came out, and then he realized he shouldn't be distraught because they did the right thing. Instead of choosing abortion... They chose to have my friend, and my friend has grown up to be a great businessman, a great member of his church, an involved member of his community. That may be your story today. It may be that your story is is that you were born into similar circumstances as my friend or as Moses. Yeah, it may not have been slavery that you were born into, but maybe it was a bad environment. Maybe the environment that you grew up in was violent. Maybe what you were born to were parents who didn't truly love each other and were fighting and there was domestic violence. Maybe you were born like Moses into a rough situation. Maybe the circumstances surrounding your birth were absolutely abysmal. Remember that God used Moses despite the circumstances that he was brought up in. It may be that God uses you just because of who you are to reach people for Christ. And we'll talk about what that means here in a moment and how to do that in a moment. I was made very aware of this at a young age as God uh, in my teenage years began to call me into the ministry. And one of the things that had a huge impression upon my calling into the ministry was the story of my dad coming to Christ. He had mentioned it to me kind of growing up that 
uh, I was important in him, his coming to Christ. And I never really understood that until he told me the full story when I was about 15 years old. And he told me the story about how he and my mom were trying to have children, and um, it seemed like that wasn't going to happen. And they tried and they tried and they did a lot of things to uh, move forward in that effort. And it just didn't seem like it was happening. So they decided that they were going to move forward with adoption. And while my dad was excited about that, he grew up in a pretty rough home. His dad was uh, a beer salesman and it was kind of a violent, kind of aggressive kind of home. And um, he came to know Christ um, or he came to hear about Christ growing up because his mom brought him to church every once in a while. But as he grew into adulthood, he really rejected the idea of, of Christ and a personal relationship with Christ. And so in this period of time when my mom and dad were um, trying to have children and moving forward into adoption, my dad made a deal with God. <laughs> it's never really a good idea to make a deal with God, but my dad made a deal with God. He said, God, I will choose to believe in you personally if you give us a biological child. And to, much to my dad's surprise, one day my mom called from the doctor's office saying, guess what, I've got good news. And my dad said right there and then he gave his life to God. And in, just in my birth, just in the story of my life, I had an impact on my dad. Now, that doesn't say anything special about me. I want you to hear this. It says something about the sovereignty of God. It doesn't matter what kind of circumstances that you were born into. God can use you. God has a better plan for your life, regardless of the circumstances you grew up in. Listen to the words of David as he recognizes that God made him uniquely in Psalm 139, verse 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? I mean, if you can really come to an understanding of that verse, there's a new richness that you can have with God if you truly understand that each one of you is created, not perfect, but unique. That God has had his hand on you, even as you were being born. The next time you begin to doubt your purpose, think about that verse. Secondly, second point this morning, God used Moses despite the turmoil of his upbringing. God used Moses to, despite the turmoil of his upbringing. The d Bible describes how Moses' Hebrew birth mother so feared for his life that she hid him. And most scholars tell us that Moses was probably hidden for at least the first two months of his life. Let's take a look at Exodus 2, verses 3 through 10. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Let's stop there for a moment. The man that God used to move two and a half million people through a desert to see the promised land one day, Moses didn't get to see it, but the nation of Israel did, didn't they? As a baby, we find him going down a river in a basket among some reeds. That's God's sovereignty in his life. Verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then the Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. 
She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This was one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. God had his hand on Moses, didn't he? Isn't that great? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. You see, we often think about uh, Moses living in Pharaoh's palace. We kind of think about Moses with a silver spoon or two or three in his mouth. But he actually wasn't born that way. He was born into abject poverty. He was born as a son of a slave. He was born literally into slavery. But God had a different plan for his life. And his early years were spent moving from house to house. He went from one place to another. He was hid in a basket. And the circumstances of his, of his upbringing must have been turmoil at best. It was probably topsy-turvy. He came from poverty. He was hidden in a basket. And the next thing you know, he has all the riches in the world. You don't think that that played with a young man's mind? You don't think that that messed him up in some deep psychological way? He probably didn't know who he was. And some of you may have been brought up the same way. Your childhood may have been bouncing from home to home to home. Maybe back and forth between divorced parents, mom one week, dad the next. I want you to hear this. God can use your circumstances of your upbringing to better your walk with him and to use for his glory. He can absolutely use those things in your life. Cynthia and I um, attended Liberty University, and um, Jerry Falwell is the, uh, was the chancellor and the founder of Liberty University and Thomas Road Baptist Church. And uh, for all of the things that you heard about Jerry Falwell in the news back in the 1980s and 90s and into the 2000s before his death in 2007, he was a gentle guy. He was a giving guy. If he saw a student in a restaurant, he paid for their meal. He was an absolute giving, giving individual. Well, his upbringing was less than Christian. It was less than God-filled, his upbringing. His family in the Lynchburg, Virginia area was known as people who were involved in mischief, and they were known as being moonshine people, okay? This is the kind of upbringing that Jerry Falwell had. And you know what God did with this guy named Jerry Falwell once he got a hold of his life? He used him to bring tens of thousands of people to Christ. And it doesn't matter what your upbringing is. It doesn't matter what your household looked like growing up. God can use you for his glory. He can use you for his glory. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, For some of you, you may want to make this your life verse. For some of you who grew up in a topsy-turvy world, you may want to make this your life verse. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of what? Peace. A God of peace. Some of you need to hear that today. That he's a God of peace. God has a plan for your life, and it includes being used by him for a kingdom purpose. Lastly, God used Moses despite the consequences of his decisions. God used Moses despite the consequences of his decisions. 
Moses is now growing up. He's essentially the son of the Pharaoh, the son of the king. And take a look at what happens to Moses in Exodus 2, 11 through 15. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out into where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Just like the son of a king, right? Just watching people work hard, okay? He goes out there and he's watching people work hard. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one around. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I love that verse because it really doesn't go into much detail other than the fact that he looked around. That's what we do when we do wrong things, isn't it? That's what we do when we make bad decisions is we look behind us. We try to find if someone's looking. But you know what? Someone's always looking, aren't they? Someone's always looking. Take a look at this. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting the fellow Hebrew? Verse 14, the man said, this is the next day, by the way, remember? Okay, he, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Aren't you, uh, are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. <laughs> then Moses was afraid and thought, what, what I did must have been known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And now we see the life of this great man, Moses. He's just made a terrible decision, and he's on the lamb. He's on the run. And he goes out, and he spends who knows how long in the wilderness. I would imagine that more than the circumstances of your birth and maybe the circumstances of your upbringing, the thing that keeps you from being in a better place with God are the results of the bad decisions that you make. You see, we can get over the first two because really we didn't have anything to do with those things. The circumstance of our birth, the circumstance of our growing up, we didn't have much to do with. And if we really rely on God, we can get over those things. But I think one of the greatest things that prevents us from being in that better place with God is the fact that we have a hard time getting over our bad decisions, our sins, our failures, our shortcomings. You can't really control the first two, but you can control the second. And sometimes guilt gets so entwined in our lives that it keeps us from that better place with God. It keeps us from that place where we're really understanding the truths of his word. It keeps us from serving him in a unique way. It keeps us from our purpose. It's our lid in terms of our walk with God and our work for him and his kingdom. See, when we do something wrong, we might even ask forgiveness for it. We might ask God to search us within, and we admit what we've done wrong, and we ask forgiveness. But so many times, we forget to accept the forgiveness that God is offering us. And when that happens, and I've been there, when that happens, it keeps us from that better place with God. Some of you today are just entwined with guilt. You're just wrapped up by it. You're consumed by it. And you'll never be able to realize God's best for you until you truly do something with that guilt and accept his forgiveness in your life. Moses had to get to the point where he did that. David did in Psalm 103. Take a look at this. He finally comes to this realization. David the one who had so many sins in his life, realizes this. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions 
from us. If you're dealing with guilt this morning, if you're dealing with a lack of being able to forgive yourself for something that you've done wrong, accept God's forgiveness. Ask him to deal with that thing that you're dealing with, that guilt from a past wrong, maybe the consequences of a bad decision. Ask him to remove that as far as the east is from the west. And when you do that, I think you're ready to go to a new place with God. You're ready to be used by him in a unique and strong way. I've always said that the people like Jerry Falwell who come from a past like Jerry Falwell came from, like Moses came from, he killed a man and ran out into the desert and hid. I've always said that it's people like that that really can be used by God in a special and unique way. Charles Swindoll says it this way, no one deserves the right to lead without first preserving, persevering through pain and heartache and failure. And some of you are there right now. Some of you need to accept the forgiveness that God's given you. Some of you need to absolutely get rid of that guilt and have God search your heart and remove that guilt. There are some of you in here today who have made bad decisions, who have made bad choices. You have sins in your life, and you need to ask God to search your heart and find those ways in you and get rid of those things. Let's make it personal this morning. It's the last point. Making it personal. Whatever has happened to you in your past, God can use to accomplish his plan for the future. Whatever has happened to you in the past, God can use to accomplish his plan for your future. He did it with Moses. Certainly he can do it with us, can't he? Let's pray this morning. Father God, I pray that you would just guide us as we respond to you, God, over these next few moments. And God, as the song that we are about ready to sing to you talks about, God, I pray that you would give us the faith to realize that you can use us. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that regardless of what we've done in the past, regardless, God, we each have a plan and a purpose for living. Help us to have the faith to believe that. Help us to, to get to the point where we completely remove the chains of guilt of the past. God, not that that gives us license to keep on sinning, but God, as we remove those chains, I pray that you would give us the ability to move to that better place with you. Oh, God, I pray that you would make your word so much sweeter. God, that you would make the truths from your word so much more real in our lives. And God, I pray that our service for you becomes something that just is absolutely passionate for us. God, I pray for those in here who came in here today and they are just riddled with guilt. God, I pray that you would help them, search them as we're going to sing here in a few moments. And God, I pray that you would help them to rid themselves and rid their lives of that thing that's weighing them down. God, search us and find in us that thing that we need to get rid of so that we can serve you. God, you're going to use us. I pray that we would have the faith to understand that we can still be used by you. In Jesus' name I pray.